All right, so after eight months, I must say it has been a great joy to preach through this series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. But we have come to the last sermon in the series, and so what I want to do with it, okay, this is a big task, but I want to take the last 29 sermons and preach them, hopefully within 45 minutes, to see the whole, to see it all come together in, in one compact synopsis. So, therefore, let's pray. Father, thank you that your mercy, the power of your grace is ever present and supplied through the cross of your Son, my Savior. And I'm in desperate need as a sinner, limited and broken as I am, to handle such treasure on behalf of your people and your glory. So, come, help me, and cause us to see, and cause us to love the beauty of your purpose in creating and redeeming to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, we began with the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And with that, we had to pause and say, oh boy, there's a lot of stuff already in there. And we concluded that God's purpose in creating was so that He would go outward and extend and spread His glory through humanity that He made in His own image. And this caused us to ask the all-important question. What does that mean? What does it mean for God to create everything for His glory? What does it mean that God wanted to spread His glory through creation? And it drives us back to the foundational question. Who is God? And what is His glory? And the answer to those two questions are the foundation of what made it, in a particular way I mean this word, necessary for God to create everything that is not God, in order to spread His glory outward. And the answer to those questions of who is God and what is His glory goes back to the very nature of who God is, is a holy trinity. And so we started with what is utter rationality. That if there is a God... And only one God who is without beginning, without ending, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient, that God must be, the way the Bible presents Him, is infinitely and gloriously happy 
and joyful and contented. And that drove us to say, what is it about God, therefore, that must be true for Him to be fully and unimaginably from our finite standpoint, absolutely content, happy, filled. And so we postulated, just think about it, this must be true, that if there is something in existence that is of supreme beauty, goodness, holiness, that, that is of the, the supreme delightfulness or deliciousness, then that being God cannot ignore it or He could not be as fully happy as He could be. But He must, with all of His knowledge, know it. And with all of His power, love it. And so God has been from all eternity loving His divine nature as a subject would love an object because in His omniscience there's no bounds to the clarity of His knowing. And therefore, God has always stood forth from God the Father as the perfect object of His love. And he is fully delighted in all of his divine being. And the second person of the Son has reflected back into the Father all his energy of love and delight and that community of sheer pleasure, happiness, and joy is infinite and unbounded that itself has always stood forth, personified as the third person of the Holy Trinity. The very joy and love and completeness and contentment of the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father has eternally been proceeding from them as the Holy Spirit. That's God. That is His glory. And we saw that that being true, God is absolutely needless. You ever been in need? You've had a toothache? I got a need. I, got, I need the pain to go away. And so you do crazy stuff like pay a lot of money for some guy to torture you for a while for the goal to get to what you want. That's need. God doesn't have that, ever has that, can never have that, or he would never be God. And therefore, but he created. Why? Well, one thing we know, therefore, he didn't create out of need. He is absolutely needless and thus utterly free, and therefore he created not us as a means to some other end, but he created humanity in his image as an end for the sheer pleasure of overflowing his own pleasure into them. That's why he created. Another way to say all that is just to say it very simply this way. God created for his glory. And therefore, one of the most important understandings about God, about creation, about us human beings is this. What motivated God to create anything was not in order to get something he did not already have. 
but the motive was to overflow with what he already has, what he already is, and extend it outward and spread it far and wide for the sheer pleasure of the joy and the energy of himself being shared. For it is more blessed even to give than it is to receive. Or in other words, he did all things for his glory. And so we opened up into the book of Genesis and we saw that God, through his eternal son, the word of his power, he created out of nothing everything that is not God. And he did it in order to display the fullness of his glory through humanity. And he sustains and he upholds all creation by the word of his power and his providence. He is in absolute control and has an absolute right over his creation to do whatever he pleases. There is no higher court before whom any of us could appeal to. There is no higher law than His Word. He is simply absolute. Without beginning, without ending, without becoming. He is the great I Am. And every human who is made in His image, without exception, will have to reckon with this God sooner or later. And there are only two possibilities. We can rebel against His absolute authority over us. Or we can trust Him as a little girl trusts her daddy. Implicitly, he's for me. And so the next thing we unfolded in the book of Genesis was the fall. Our first human parents fell into deception. They were deceived. And thus chose the path of rebellion. Here's the deception. Of independence. The deception laid out in Genesis that they fell for was up against God's command. Freely eat. Everything is yours. I'm here for you. One thing. Do not partake. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then comes the deceiver. He's only holding back true happiness from you. That's why he doesn't want you to touch it. He's not really out for you. Because he, he doesn't want any competition. He knows that if you eat of it, you will be like God. Independent. Self-sufficient. Which would mean, you eat Eve, you eat Adam, then you can stop depending on God like little children. You don't have to look to Him for Him to tell you what is good, what is bad, what is holy, what is beautiful, what is ugly, what is evil. 
what is righteous. No. You can eat. And you can decide those things, like God, for yourself. And then you will be much happier. And they ate. And thus we all ate. And the fall was therefore the desire at its core, and it was the action to be self-determining. Independent. Self-righteous. And as a result, in God's holy judgment, He withdrew the grace of His sanctifying presence so that since the first sin, every one of us since have come into this world bent on rebellion from the core of our being. We are not merely sinners because we sin and do sins. We sin because all of us are born sinners. And so the very essence of our nature in which we are born into this world, the way Paul says it in Ephesians 2, children of wrath, bent on evil, but at its core, it is this utter distaste for the idea that I should be like a little child depending on the great God who made me. We hate it. We hate the idea of dependence in the sin nature in which we were all born. And so the early history of humanity could be summarized the way it was summarized in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But, as we started off the series and I started off this sermon... God's intention from before He created was this theme of redemption, of redeeming sinful people for His eternal purpose that He through them would be glorified. And that purpose, even with what we see leading up to the destruction of everybody but eight people, that purpose would not be frustrated. And therefore God chose after that one pagan man named Abraham who had a barren wife. And he made a promise to Abraham saying in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so God's goal to reclaim by mercy a rebellious creation was continuing in the way He unfolded things. 
And he begins it right there with a man and his wife, and through them they have a son Isaac and a grandson Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And Jacob or Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 patriarchs, or the 12 heads or tribes of Israel. And so God begins to work in human history with this people in order through them to write a lesson book for the whole world eventually to read on how salvation is found. So after centuries of enslavement in Egypt, his people, Israel, cry out, and God then says, it's time. And he delivers them out of slavery, miraculously, through ten plagues and then through the Red Sea. As Moses stands before Israel and the Egyptian army rushing on the other side and a sea in front of him says, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And so He delivers them. And now they're off into the wilderness, free from slavery. And after three months they arrive the base of Mount Sinai, and God gives to them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law through Moses. And the basic reason He does that is to show the people this is how you will act if they have faith in the God of the Exodus. The law given through Moses at its core, is a description of what the obedience of faith looks like. The law of Moses did not demand of the people to try to obey it and earn salvation from me. The law did not offer blessing to only perfect people. There were no perfect people. He offered the law and mercy to sinful people. It demanded that the people put their hope in the mercy of God. The law of Moses called for an obedience from a heart of trust or faith. Illustrated in Joshua or Caleb, Moses, and go on down the line, to all kinds of other sinners just like us being saved by grace. And with that law, it provided the, the cultic, the ritualistic, sacrificial system of animals for praise offerings and sin offerings and the Day of Atonement and all of this through Moses. The call of faith and the sacrificial system of substitution was all there to point to one who was to come, 
And one day John the Baptist will see him at a distance and point out down by the river the Lamb of God. There he is, who takes away the sin of the world. And that one will come. And as is illustrated throughout the rest of the lesson book, he is to be received by faith and by faith alone. So we saw that in the wilderness of 40 years of wandering, God showed that even though there's no food out here and there's no water, I'll feed you and I'll give you drink for 40 years. Why? So they could learn the lesson, you should trust the Lord. The manna from heaven that he fed them with for 40 years, it was a foreshadowing of the Christ who is the true bread of heaven to come. When Moses lifted up the serpent, people were dying all over the place for the healing. Look at it and you'll be healed. It was a foreshadowing of Christ who would be lifted up on a cross. And then when finally Israel, after 40 years, crossed over the Jordan to possess the land that was promised to their forefather Abraham centuries earlier, they finally conquered and they had rest, kind of, but not really. It was only partial. It was an imperfect rest. And so the New Testament book of Hebrews sees that rest that Joshua brought them into as a type, a, a shadow, again, of something that is much greater than that that is to come. And he calls it in his writing, the better country or a city which is to come, saying, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, today, it's first century, and today, the 21st century. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so we saw they're in the land for 200 years. And then, the next step in redemptive history is the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Based upon the sin of the people. They wanted a king for evil purposes. And God gave them one. And God turned that for good. For the second king, David, God promises to bring a Savior towards whom all the law, all the history, and all the prophets were pointing. And all the history of Israel, therefore, became this great lesson book. We call it the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, so that one day, when David's son would come, his name is Jesus, the good news of His coming and His accomplishment will go to the whole world and it won't go empty-handed. It will go with a book. You call it the Old Testament. It is the lesson book for all the nations, not just for the Jews. And the very 
core of that lesson book teaches God is the creator. He is the owner of all things. He rules the world. It teaches that His goal is to subdue the rebellion in the world and to be glorified through an obedient, joyful people who turn and forsake self-reliance and put their faith and their hope in Him alone. It teaches they, no one, Jew or Gentile, no one can attain their own righteousness through any kind of works of the law. But instead, one must entirely count on the undeserved mercy of God who will raise up for King David a descendant, a righteous branch, whose name will be, according to Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord is our righteousness. And then the rest of the Old Testament prophets keep reiterating this promise, the seed of David, the son of David, to come to sit upon the throne. And then about 430 or so B.C., God goes silent. For over 400 years, no prophets in the land. And then the next thing God does in redemptive history, in order to bring it to a climax, catches everybody off guard. He splits the coming of the Messiah into two comings, separated by almost, I mean, excuse me, separated by at least, don't know how long, but at least 2,000 years. And as we saw, this was utterly unexpected to the Jews of the first century. Just read the Gospels. They're constantly baffled. And the Old Testament prophets themselves had not been told how all these pieces are fitting together and the timing of them. And so we read in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1, this is how he looks back at this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours in Jesus, the Messiah, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He, the prophets, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what they didn't see. That only His coming in majesty and glory was subsequent to something that comes first. Some of the prophets, by the Spirit, foresaw the Messiah suffer. Like Isaiah 53. 
And then other times, that same one will see, or another prophet will see him not suffering, but coming in majesty and glory and with a sword and vengeance and salvation. What they did not see was how his suffering and his glory fit together. Namely, that there would be two comings of the Messiah. The first time through the womb of Mary to become truly, absolutely human. Just like us. Yet without sin. In order to suffer. And to die. And to rise. But then he will return. After having ascended for so long in his human resurrected immortality in order to bring in the consummated kingdom that is promised and to judge unbelievers. The prophets, the Old Testament, the Jews, the first century, they're all looking forward mainly to this great majestic day of the Lord when the Messiah would defeat his enemies and sanctify his people and establish his kingdom and rule in peace and righteousness forever. The coming of the Messiah to them, it meant the end of the age and the beginning of the age to come that they anticipated. It meant the establishment of the eternal kingdom of God where David's son would rule on earth forever. They didn't see the first coming. And so no wonder Jesus' closest friends, after this supernatural revelation given to Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who you are. You're right, Peter. My father revealed it to you. But that's not what stunned him. What stunned him is what he said next. And the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And it just doesn't fit. How in the world can you defeat your enemies and establish your kingdom and fulfill the promises of the Old Testament if you're rejected by Israel and killed like a criminal? And it took Jesus at least three years of teaching, ministry, publicly and to his close associates in private. And then many teaching resurrection appearances to drive it home. And then, wait, don't do anything until I pour out the Holy Spirit. It took all of that, even before His hand-picked apostles could grasp that it was precisely because of His rejection and His death and His resurrection that Jesus, David's Son, defeated his enemies 
and did inaugurate the kingdom of God and fulfilled the promises. And when the apostles finally got it, then they were prepared to interpret the meaning of his first coming. In summary form, this is how his apostle, Paul, interprets it. All have sinned, meaning in the context, every Jew and everybody else. Every Jew and every Gentile are all under condemnation for their sin because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's only one way of salvation for Jew or Gentile. He goes on. And thus, a person, Jew or Gentile, is justified. That means God declaring them acquitted of their sin. And just before Him, or righteous before Him. That seems like an impossibility for us unrighteous, ungodly people. Thus they are justified by His grace as a gift through the transaction of something Jesus did. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood. He says only one way that any of us ungodly sinners could be caught up into enjoying God's glory forever. And that is that God sent God the Son to become one of us. So that on the cross He would impute, put to the credit of Jesus, our sin, and kill Him. Punish Him. Pour out His wrath upon Him. And He did it. And He thus retained His justice. For a holy God cannot deny Himself. A holy God cannot treat Himself lightly. Which would be the same is treating sin against him lightly. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. He dealt with it fully. And it took God the Eternal One, becoming truly human, to bear it. And thus, God was propitiated 
toward every person who would believe. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. As Paul says, it was for our sake that God made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin, to be the sin offering. That is the one who himself never sinned in his humanity. He did that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God, unveiled as he did, as the Lord Jesus in resurrection appearances did to Paul, he says it's there in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures all along, and the Christ event brought it all together, and this is the gospel. And what these apostles also saw, and we see it in their writings, is that they continually look forward to the second coming. But, read the New Testament closely. They understand that Jesus, 2,000 years ago now, in His first coming, ushered in the last days. The end of the age. They do not treat the incarnation of Christ and the cross is just another bend in the road of redemptive history. It is central. With Christ comes the end. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, it says that the, all the events in the Old Testament happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. And when the Apostle Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost to explain what all this commotion is about out there in the temple grounds with thousands of fellow Jews around, this is what he said. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in the last day. It shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. The last days are here. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Or as the Hebrew writer says, these that were in since Christ are the end of the ages. When he writes, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And just as is it appointed, it is appointed for every man and woman to die once. And after that comes judgment so Christ, having been offered 
once to bear the sins of many. It's His first coming. He will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. The end of the ages has come. And the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached to all peoples and to all nations. And then the end, end will come. And so after 30 weeks, how do I close it all in the next 10 minutes? by trying to even make it more concise so we see it and feel it, hear it. Most of you have been here for every one of them. Hear the very first three sermons. The eternally self-sufficient, contented, holy, perfectly happy and fulfilled. Only God. He created. And He created us, human beings, in His own image for the purpose of overflowing His glory. We were made to glorify God by enjoying Him forever and ever and ever. And we know this. God from all eternity past, He desired to show forth His glory in the context of mercy. Okay, I don't know if you got that yet. It is one thing to say, Adam and Eve, innocent beings, you don't know what to compare it to. Just enjoy my presence, walk with me in the cool of the day forever, and it's great, but it's greater. If those persons repel and fall and spurn His glory and feel the weight of His divine presence in judgment and then have Him for no reason that is in them the sinner. To show mercy. And now enjoy me. Forever. And that's why. Sin. And wrath. Must be a part. Of redemptive history. Romans 9. Or to just say. Why must they be? Here's why they must be. So that all history. 
And thus it will redound forever and ever in the resurrection will always point to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so every one of you in here who believes in Jesus is He that treasure in the field to you. When you hear the gospel, do you love it? And you see perfectly, you're broken. But you cling to Him. Hear your Savior speak to you in Luke chapter 12. Fear not, little flock. Don't miss his logic. I'm not supposed to fear. Why? Because it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So hear it again. Fear not, Jesus says, little flock, because it is your father's. There's no reluctance on his part. He's actually really happy. It's his pleasure to give to you the kingdom. The sum of God's purpose in redemptive history is that He has unbounded joy and pleasure to give to you the kingdom. He doesn't promise you in this life wealth. He doesn't promise you health or fame or popularity or no suffering. He doesn't promise you that you won't have a long, grueling death. But He promises you the kingdom of God. And if you're in the presence, the present kingdom, now, it's here, but it's still not yet. There's a not yet. There's the consummation of the kingdom that will come with Jesus' second coming. But if you're in the kingdom, He promises you, you will inherit the earth. You will judge angels. We will reign on earth with Christ our King. We will eat of the tree of life. The wolf will lie down with the lion. Nation shall not lift up sword again 
against nation. Our bodies will be changed and made new into immortal humanity. And death and tears and sin nature shall be no more. He promises you that. But, don't miss it. All of those things are only fringe benefits. They're only secondary privileges of the kingdom of salvation. The core, the main reward of salvation, of the kingdom of God, of all redemptive history, the main thing He gives is God Himself to behold the glory of God, to enjoy Him with the very joy that He has been enjoying Himself forever. And we who are in Christ right now have only tasted. It's like when I ask my kid for a piece of candy, they always break off a microscopic piece. But that taste is the proof you belong to Him. You see, one of the greatest frustrations in this life for every genuine Christian is that we've been granted supernaturally through new birth and the presence of the Holy Spirit a glimpse of the glory of God. But we all know that our capacities for joy are so tiny. And thus we feel frustrated at the gap between God's glory and our capacity to respond to it with our hearts. But we anticipate, and this is the hope, the New Testament time, this is the hope. We anticipate not just the present kingdom that is here, but we anticipate the consummated kingdom when all of our sinful restraints will be utterly removed. And we will be given the ability to savor the glory of God in infinite satisfaction. Unhindered in our finiteness. And that will not be partial delights that we experience now in this present age. And so I close this 30 weeks of sermons with wanting us to hear this that I said from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. Remember his great high priestly prayer in John 17. Let's listen carefully. 
how he prays for us. Father, I desire that they, whom you've given to me, that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am in order to see my glory. That is my glory that you have given to me because you, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. So don't miss this. He's appealing to the very love the eternal Father has to the eternal Son. And that's my glory. And I want them to see it. And he goes on. Father, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. He will listen to his purpose. So that the love with which you, Father, have loved me, that love may be in them and I in them. That's the goal of salvation. This is why I hate the prosperity gospel. It's a lie, and it's deceptive, and it's idolatrous. This is the goal of all history. Our Lord Jesus asks His eternal Father that we might see His glory. How, Jesus? His answer is, so that the love with which you, Father, have loved me may be in them and I in them. That the very eternal joy that the Father has in the Son and the Son has in the Father personified in God the Holy Spirit may be in us and be our joy through mercy forever and ever. That is God's purpose in redemptive history. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are beyond Words like good. No wonder your apostle 
says they're unsearchable, they're, they're, in, they're undefinable of what you have in store for us as you will be unfolding mercy in kindness forever. Oh, may you grow each and every one of our faith that we would really believe your word. That we would thus be answers to the prayer of your son. As he cried out even before his anticipation of the cross. That we would experience your glory. That we would experience what it is to cry out, Abba, Daddy. As Paul lets us know, it's only because you have poured out his very spirit within us. And thus, we feel and sense in measure what he for all eternity has felt and known perfectly. You're good. You're glorious. We love you. To the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.